Hello, you're listening to Pod HD, the podcast that goes hand in hand with the Pub HD network of pubs and PhD researchers. My name is Guy Kitty. There were two anniversaries in January that can't go without a mention. Firstly, Pub HD Nottingham, the birthplace of this whole idea of giving doctoral researchers 10 minutes to talk about their work, celebrated its third birthday. And over in Portugal, our friends at Pub HD Umino ticked off their first year of talks. In this episode, we're in Edinburgh and Leicester. First up is a friend of mine who's done everything from monitoring the movements of sheep to understand the hierarchies of their society, to tickling rats under the chin. My name's uh, Alistair Lawrence, and I have a personal chair at an organisation known as Scotland's Rural College, and I also have one with the University of Edinburgh, and I work in the Roslyn Institute. And the Roslyn Institute includes agricultural biotechnology research. What is the scope of the, the work that goes on there? It's pretty broad. Uh, it, it's intended to be primarily focused on animals, although there are some people who work there who are on the interface between animals and humans. Uh, and I, as we'll come on to, I'm interested particularly in animal behaviour. So there is work on animal behaviour, and not just in farm animals, which I should say is also a main focus of the Roslyn Institute, but also in other types of animals like wild animals, wild birds. So you mentioned your interest in animal behaviour and uh, we've been out on many a walk together, most notably along the Pentland Hills, which run to the south side of Edinburgh. And you showed me the patches where you studied flocks of sheep there. Mm -hmm. But the general theme throughout your career has been or has become happiness in animals. Yeah. um, Okay. so let me just um, kind of give you a bit of context. Well, basically, about mid-1960s, Uh, people became aware that animal farming had changed significantly and farming had become much more intensive and animals which had traditionally been kept outdoors were now kept indoors and a whole range of concerns which became known as animal welfare concerns emerged. From those early days, animal welfare has become uh, a concern not just of farm animals, of course, but also pets, zoo animals, circus animals, and actually increasingly also into the wild populations. Much of the focus has been on eliminating or trying to eliminate harms to animals, things like pain. And so, for example, there's been a lot of concern and a lot of work on removing the tails of not just dogs, but uh, pigs and uh, other sorts of manipulations of animals that are seen to be necessary, but may still cause the animals, you know, significant discomfort. So those those manipulations have have their their basis in in tradition. Was it just traditional that a mm-hmm. farmer would dock a, a sheep's tail, a lamb's tail, or was there some practical reason for that? hygiene reason for example yeah so so lambs are yeah i know that all the different animals have got all the different reasons for why it happens so sheep have a particular problem of course which is fly strikes so they, they get dirty tails and that can encourage uh flies to land on them lay eggs and and yes you can have a, a problem quite quickly which is a really horrible problem so yeah farmers have traditionally probably docked the tails of lambs for hygiene reasons but sometimes also for cosmetic reasons too dogs well they say sometimes it's practical you know that game dogs can damage their tails if they're long um 
but again, often it's done for cosmetic reasons. In the case of pigs, tails are removed on farms because pigs nibble and bite each other's tails and cause each other harm, and therefore farmers remove them to try and prevent them doing that. Is that acquired behaviour? I presume pigs don't nibble each other's tails in a natural environment. As far as we know, not. And the general consensus is that it's caused by animals, sorry, pigs being kept in less than optimal environments, which cause that type of response. Anyway, that, that's where I sort of came from. Uh, but towards the end of my career, I've been doing this for quite a while, I decided I should try and end on a, a happier note <laughs> or a more positive note. And... Over the last 10 years, it just so happens that uh, in our field, people have begun to discuss something known as positive welfare, which is that we should be considering not just the elimination of the sorts of harms that we've just been talking about, but actually questions about whether animals can have positive experiences as well. And if they can, then what should they be? And I think that's a really interesting question. And it just happens that, in fact, it's mirrored by similar changes in human psychology. So if, if you look at the literature in human psychology, it's predominated by papers on depression and anxiety and OCD and all the rest of it. Um, and very few, actually, until relatively recently, are on happiness. But now we have Journal of Happiness Studies, and there's a fair amount of attention now being focused on issues like optimism, optimism, uh, and the contribution that a more positive psychological state could have to your physical health, for example. Recent evidence just published suggesting that optimistic women are less likely to succumb to major illnesses uh, in their later life. And that's not apparently just because of life choices, like whether they're healthy, sorry, they exercise more. It seems perhaps it's something to do with that brain state, that optimistic brain state. So you had the, the, the negative welfare approach before this revolution, and perhaps you could talk about what precipitated that change in thinking 10 years ago, but essentially in, a let's say, a farm animal context, the regulation was put in place to ensure that there was a minimum standard of welfare, and that minimum standard ensured that animals didn't suffer in due pain or distress or, mm. or whatever in that category of freedom from undesirable emotions or, or circumstances. I think I've read in some of the information that you've sent that not only does this positive approach account for or cover all of those freedoms from pain and so on and stress that traditionally have been recognised, but as you say in the context of this human research as well, promotes better health in the animals. My question now is, might there be an economic incentive to pursue that positive welfare approach. You've, you're absolutely right to have drawn a distinction between uh, the two element, the two human elements of this. I mean, it's a, it's a bit crude, but on the one hand, you've got, if you like, the citizen question. You know, as citizens, what moral responsibility do we have for animals? That's one set of questions. And in a way, that should be somewhat, if not entirely, independent of the utility questions, you know, what we use animals for, what value they are to us and so on. It should be based on our assessment of the capacity of that animal to either suffer or now I'm or we're saying have a good life. Uh, on the other hand, we've got the human interest question. And in fact, it's pretty hard to dissociate that from the moral question in all in most real and practical situations, not least because animals domestic animals are owned by people. 
You know, it's not like they are separate individual agents. They are part of somebody's estate. And it's hard then to order, or sorry, expect people to just necessarily always be moral um, because they have vested interest. So you're absolutely right also to, to, to point to the imperative of trying to find evidence that produces this um, so-called win-win type of scenario where we can demonstrate that it's not only in the animal's interest that we do something, but it's also in the human interest. And, and I think we need considerably more focus on that type of research. And, and one of the interesting questions is, as you, I think, just pointed, is are, I'm going back to the human example, are animals which are in a better psychological state also more likely to be healthier, physically healthier? And that's a really interesting question. Let's move on now to a slightly less technical mm. field and, and back to this idea of animal happiness. And I know that you have particular interest in tickling rats. <laughs> Perhaps you can talk about this proposed uh, research project you have to, to look at the effect of something that most rats seem to find pleasurable on their health and ability, particularly to fight disease. Um, okay, so uh, we've been trying to uh, develop a way of studying pleasure in animals. And so we started couple of years ago, a few years ago, working on play behavior, which you probably realize occurs in all mammals, particularly young animals. And so we, we did some work on that. And, and then we tried to develop, uh, as we like to say, an experiment, experimental model of play, but we couldn't quite isolate it uh, in the, quite the way that we wanted to. By that, I mean, we couldn't, when we introduced animals into a situation where we wanted them to play, they did other things as well. <laughs> so we could, we didn't have a clean model of play on its own, which could, would mean then if we wanted to measure other things that we couldn't say that it was definitively due to play. So then we moved into something which is a bit more broader than that, which is uh, an area, again, you may well have heard of because it, it's quite well known, called environmental enrichment. So this is where you add into captive animal environments stimuli to allow them to behave more like they would in the wild and of course it's very well known in zoos that big, there's been a big movement away from these you know classic sort of concrete small enclosures to much more elaborate larger spaces where monkeys can behave much more like monkeys birds can fly around and large carnivores can pace a bit sorry <laughs> locomotive it more than just pacing up and down in front uh, and similarly in farm animals there's been the same sort of idea it's just again going back to the economics it's been much harder to actually encourage the widespread use of environmental enrichment where it's really required for example in uh, production of pigs anyway so we're still on the hunt for a kind of definitive model or a way of inducing a state of pleasure in animals. And, and so we got interested in this uh, research which has been going on now for actually for quite a little while, which is tickling rats. The story on rat tickling really starts in the uh, early 2000s. So a couple of American neuroscientists, Yak Panksepp and Jeremy Bergdorf, had this idea that they could replicate what rats do to each other when they're playing 
by basically handling the rat and then tickling it on the nape of the neck, which is where rats target, often target their play behavior. So they, they sort of wrestle with each other and they grab hold of that particular part of the neck. And they found if they did that, uh, that the rats would produce very high-pitched, well, ultrasound vocalizations, which they could record using specialized equipment. And the rats, they discovered, tend to only produce these vocalizations when they are undergoing something like tickling or anticipating something else that's presumably pleasurable, like sex <laughs> or access to sweet food or something like that. So these 50 kilohertz ultrasonic vocalizations appear to indicate pleasure in, in the rat. And indeed, Yat Pangsep courted a considerable amount of controversy when he suggested that these ultrasounds may in fact be the ancestral form of laughter in animals. And I can tell you not all neuroscientists are happy to accept that. But uh, actually there are now papers being published uh, which quite openly use those words. So they say laughing rats, non-laughing rats. So yeah, we've got interested in the possibility of using that type of approach or other ways of inducing pleasure in animals as, as a way of then validating that we have established in the animal a pleasurable positive psychological state. And then if we can do that, then we can go on and study the wider impacts of that pleasurable state on, for example, um, other physical attributes like, like health. So that's, that's really where we're trying to, to head at the moment. And then I guess the, the closing the loop on my original starting place would be to take that to, to farm animals and see if we could replicate that type of approach in farm animals. And perhaps in doing so, you know, we could come up with some novel ways of enriching animals in these confined spaces that they have to live in which don't demand a massive amount of extra space or a massive amount of resource, but may nonetheless induce a reasonable degree of pleasure in the animal. If we can, in the first place, get to a point where we, we've got some sort of gold standard or and out of that gold standard, we've got some measures that we can apply, which we're reasonably confident are, are, are telling us that this animal is in a better psychological state than another animal. You mentioned before that uh, this idea of the ultrasonic chirps that these rats emit mm. being the sort of evolutionary ancestor to laughter has caused a lot of controversy. And many people will dispute the sentience of animals. But in some of the information that you sent in preparation for this interview, I did read that there has been some work done on the, I think it's the limbic system in the brains of man mammals and close parallels drawn between humans and other mammals, mm. what you might call lesser lesser mammals, mm. perhaps without the ability to, to interpret a facial expression as expressing happiness or sadness, but very much the ability to feel and share happiness and, and sadness. How, how established is that link and, and is that something that's going to contribute 
um, to your wider research and its application to the eventual welfare goal? I think I think the links are well. There's certainly evidence out there to support the idea that similar brain circuitry, if you want to use that type of word, and it, obviously it's not it's not like a wiring diagram in the brain, but you know, basically centers of neural centers and the connection between those tend to be called circuitry. Uh, and if you study that in various ways, of course, there are a variety of methods for this, in, in, mostly including taking tissue from dead animals and then, for example, slicing it very, very thinly and, and using radioactive isotopes to then visualize areas which are activated under particular circumstances. Then the evidence is reasonable, if not quite to very strong, depending on the specific stimulus we're talking about that similar brain circuitry is activated in say an animal like a guinea pig to a human uh, if you for example were to take the pups away from a guinea pig or the child away from a mother so the same distress sorry the distress if you want to use that term of having your offspring removed temporarily induces the same sort of neural response in those very divergent species. So that, I think, is reasonably uh, established for certain types of situation and including um, positive aspects as well. But as you said right at the start of this little section, not everyone is then willing to accept that that means necessarily that animals are having the same, similar, or any conscious experience <laughs> of of that situation. So that that's that's still the, if you like, the big, almost existential question, which some people say will perhaps never be answered. I mean, it's it's very akin, if not almost identical to questions over human consciousness and we know how difficult that is and and just finally in terms of public engagement with this field it, it's either generally it's either in the form of a shock horror story in a newspaper some terrible welfare infringement or perhaps in a bbc natural history documentary that the public engage with this idea of animals being more than just furry beasts with four legs or mm. something similarly simplistic what, what's your view of, of how, uh, for example, the BBC portrays this broad and very important field and, and what perhaps might be a, a, a gap to fill in or an important different approach that would serve to educate the general public in a better way about the field? Now, that's a really interesting question, Guy. Um, somebody, just before I came here, I was at a meeting where somebody was telling me I had to watch this BBC programme uh, where they, and I, sorry, I don't even know the proper title for the programme, it's just been broadcast, where they've been basically producing the these robotic animals, animatronics, uh, and they're putting them into wild animal populations or groups. I think it's called Spy Cam in the Wild. Spy Cam in the Wild. Yeah. And, and they've been unexpectedly filming extraordinary animal behavior so somebody said for example that 
the chimps in the group broke the uh, device and then apparently sat around consoling each other <laughs> putting arms around shoulders uh, and yes and also there, had, there was a capture on the spy camera of a chimp that had adopted a kitten and and the argument was that this is one of the first uh, visual pieces of evidence of cross-species empathy or association attachment like that so whatever again you know I could have all sorts of scientific interpretations of what we're seeing there but for the person watching it you know it's pretty hard to deny the evidence that here is something that looks remarkably like human behavior and and more positive you know really positive extension from one's own self to oh my goodness we've just gone and hurt this new member of the group and it was good fun and we're sorry um so you know yeah yeah of course we could have all the scientific explanations but nonetheless in that context i'm sure lots and lots of people who watched that were just amazed and and interested and thinking this is really adding to my knowledge and actually it's making me feel quite nice as well so i would say you know given that my primary interest are the millions if not billions of farm animals which we rear and kill and consume every year that that means of suddenly engaging in a very specific way with a few individual animals so that you really empathize well en engage I was careful to use the word empathize but you know you properly engage with these individual animals and you get on a level with them which is I think reasonable and true to the, the situation the animals are living in if that could be applied to farm animals which let's face it in their millions and billions are really treated as objects that's the point if we could somehow translate that into the farm animal context and have people just think that of the billion chickens that's how many we kill in the UK alone every year for consumption something close to a billion chickens each one of those is is an individual animal and okay you could argue over its sentience but if you accept as you know if you the, the evidence of lots of science that it's not improbable that they are sentient then that's a big issue and, and I, I love some way of engaging the public in, in, in that and I think some of these new technologies uh, you know offer quite exciting broadcasting opportunities for us so I guess the link that has to be made is between the wonderful cinematography of the African savanna <laughs> and a select gr uh, group of meerkats or leopards or whatever they're filming, and then the reality of these billion chickens, far less palatable, far less picturesque. Yes. Um, but actually, the crux of, of, of what this issue is about the fact that animals do interact with each other maybe they don't read each other's facial expressions but they do feel as a group they have some mutual recognition of each other mm. and that a chicken isn't just something who's, that will run around 
for a few seconds, spurting blood if you chop its head off, and then eat on a Sunday uh, Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Um, I agree. That's the challenge, isn't it? It's it's so easy to engage people with beautiful scenery and and fantastically interesting wild animals. If you've got ten thousand chickens on the floor in a shed, all looking rather similar, uh, it's so much harder. And now for a little music. This time we have something from a guy who goes by the name of Questing Spirit. This is a tune called Phantom Love, recorded especially for us. spirit. Now I've always loved bees and the research up next stands to contribute to safeguarding their future. I'll let Holly Marshall take you through the topic as if I'm honest I might get lost if I try to give an introduction myself. 
I'm Holly. Um, I work at University of Leicester and I'm looking at something called genomic imprinting in bumblebees. Um, so to kind of briefly explain what that is, as I'm sure you know already, we all inherit two copies of our DNA, right? One from our mother and one from our father. Now, some of the genes inside you at any one time can be switched off and sometimes they can be switched on, producing you as a person. Now, genomic imprinting is where some of your genes are turned on or off and it depends which parent they come from as to whether they're turned off or not. So just to explain that a little bit further so you get it, if you inherit, let's say, gene A from your mother, then maybe it's turned on in you. But if you inherit the exact same gene A but from your father, then it could be switched off. What dictates uh, which gene is switched on or off? Is that just a matter of chance or is there some process going on behind the scene? Well, in bumblebees, we don't know. And that's what I'm trying to look at. And we don't actually know if this happens definitely in bumblebees. But in humans, it's something called um, methylation. So what this is, it's like a little chemical that will come and attach to your DNA at certain places in your genes. And this chemical can be inherited from your parents at these places. And that will determine whether the gene is switched on or off. Um, so during development, actually, a lot of these marks get erased. But there are some that stay put. And these are the ones that determine your gene from your parents, whether it's on or off or not. And and you're doing this as part of uh, the social epigenetics departments at the University of, of, of Lesser. What could, perhaps you could unpack that. What What is social epigenetics? Right. So when we talk about sociality in terms of insects, um, these are insects that all live together in colonies. So you might think about ants, you might think about bumblebees, honeybees. Um, and so really we focus purely on these insects in terms of social, the social structure. And then epigenetics, like I say, that part of it, these are differences that can occur um, within your DNA. So not the code itself, but differences that occur kind of on the DNA or around it. Um, and these determine, or we think they play a role in sociality in insects, but that's quite debated. So we can't say for definite they do, but there's some evidence uh, to and for different uh, species. So does that mean that if a group of bees uh, in a hive has a certain genome, or they've all inherited a type of a gene from a queen, for example, does that mean that they all, they all like each other more than the rest of the bees? Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, actually. So that pretty much, in terms of our bumblebees, at least, is what we're, we're really trying to look at in our group. So I can't comment too much on ants and honeybees because um, my expertise definitely is not in that area. Um, but in terms of bumblebees, so the queen um, will only ever mate with one male. So all of her offspring, they're all female to start with, the workers, they're all female and obviously they share the queen and the father's DNA, right? But then the queen, if she starts to produce males that are not workers in our bumblebee colony, they actually don't inherit any of the original father's DNA right so they're not as related to the workers if you like um as let's say a son that come from a worker so if our worker produces a son that's more related to our original father because it contains some of his dna whereas if the queen produces a son there's none of the father's dna there so there's this kind of competition for passing on their genes and that's why we think this genomic imprinting should play a role so that implies that the queen's dna is more important in an evolutionary sense, because there's a greater chance, well, there's 50% chance that her DNA is inherited by any of the worker bees' offspring. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So she thinks her DNA is more important, but obviously the father, he thinks his DNA is more important. So that's where you get this kind of conflict for reproduction because they both, mother and father, want their genes passed on, right? Um, and in some contexts, this happens for the male, the original male, and in other contexts, this doesn't happen. Um, so we get a conflict. Um, well, perhaps you could talk about um, how you became interested in this field, because, well, like all PhD subjects, it's very specific. But perhaps there's something that you discovered earlier in life or something that has sort of brought you down this road. It'd be interesting to hear what that is. Um, so pretty much I've always been interested in biology um, since a child. So I used to go and collect frogs, um, just go into the garden and collect up a frog and would see the frog and think this is awesome. So I always, I've always been interested in biology and animals, that sort of thing. Um, and then I went through my career thinking um, I would love to go in this path, but unfortunately, you know, for research you need a master's degree and it's quite expensive. Um, so I ended up working uh, in a different career in the gaming industry, so as a bingo caller. And it was during that time, actually, that I realised, oh, it really doesn't matter how expensive it is, I'll save the money, I'll go back and do something that I enjoy every day. So I just I go into work and I love what I do. It's every, There are new facts every day, there's something interesting, I get to work with animals. Um, there are no customers, so that's great. <laughs> that's something that I like a lot. Um, yeah, so I just realised it's much better than, than an alternative career I could take. Just out of interest, what's your favourite bingo call? You wouldn't believe it. You're not allowed to say them anymore. It's professional gambling. You can't say them. <laughs> That's been outlawed, has it? Well, yeah, at least. Was well, it, it deemed least... deemed discriminatory to call eighty eight two fat ladies, or is that is that, <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> no tagline. It's just eighty eight all the eights. Um, what a shame! Was... I'm so disappointed yeah. to hear that. <laughs> Very sorry. Yeah, but anyway, so 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 back to your back to your bees. There must be broader implications to this study. What I'm asking is, what what is the point in 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 determining uh, the nature of imprinted genes in in bees? What do you hope to sort of extrapolate from this this study? Um, well, genomic imprinting in humans, at least, is involved in lots of um, diseases. So, Prader-Williams syndrome, for example, is um, genomically imprinted. A few cancers are also involved in um, or come from uh, genetically imprinted genes. Um, so as I'm sure you know, and most of the community knows listening to this, bees are extremely important, both economically, environmentally, um, as a pollinator species, we really need them. So it's pretty important that we really understand what's going on at their genetic level, because we can't aim to uh, rescue a species from crisis if we have no idea what's happening at their genes. Um, so kind of finding this information is just another stepping stone forward um, in terms of science and in terms of yeah, helping the bees, if you like. Right, so you'll, you'll understand the, the genome of the bees and that will contribute to the, the conservation and angle of side of things. Um, you also mentioned that, that certain uh, conditions in humans are inherited as a result of genetic Im imprinting. So it seems almost self-destructive that where there's a healthy copy of a gene and an unhealthy copy or a, a, a bad copy of a gene, if you want to call it that, something along the way decides that that healthy copy of the gene should be switched off and allowing, therefore, the unhealthy uh, copy of the, of the gene to, be, to express itself. Are there any thoughts as to why that might be, uh, sort of from an evolutionary sense or from a population control uh, point of view, perhaps? 
Well, you're exactly right. So genomic imprinting really, in terms of evolutionary theory, shouldn't exist. For the exact reason you've just said, we shouldn't want to turn off a copy of our genes because it's not a good idea, right? Like you say, you can get diseases and stuff. Um, so a guy called Haig came up with a theory um, many years ago called the kinship theory. So this tries to explain why genomic imprinting might have uh, arose, if you like, might have been selected for in evolution. So in a nutshell, um, to describe it, he says there are different selection pressures on our genes depending on which parent they come from, whether it's the mother or the father. Um, so to explain that, if you imagine you have, um, let's say, a particular female of any given species and she mates with multiple males, so there are many different fathers to her offspring. Now, we know, looking at this situation, all of the offspring carry the mother's genes, no doubt, she's given birth to them, right? So we would expect her genes to behave in a very um, altruistic manner, if you like, to ensure all the offspring survive and they all pass on the genes to the next generation. Whereas genes from the father, he's not sure whether the genes are in offspring A, B, C, so he would, you would expect even, um, his genes to behave in a selfish manner to ensure that that individual survives and that individual passes the genes on to the next generation. How, how far through your research are you? How long have you been um, focusing on, on your bumblebee? Um, at the moment, I'm working on two big projects, right? So one of them is this genomic imprinting project, um, which all my data is collected for. Um, and actually, I should mention I'm collaborating with the University of Leuven. So they produce half of this data that I'm looking at. Um, so it's a lot of coding, actually, as a scientist in the genetics field. Anyway, a lot of programming, learning to write code, um, which I never expected when I started, actually. I never thought I'd be learning this. Um, so I'm partway through uh, this project and another reasonably similar project. Um, but actually, and I think this will take me up to at least kind of near my near the end of my third year, but I would really like, um, and I've been asking my boss a lot about this, and he's happy if we can get some funding if I've got the time, to do something called environmental epigenetics. So this is where we go out into the wild, we collect specimens from natural populations, and we look for epigenetic differences. So these um, these groups I was talking about on the DNA, these methyl groups, we look at differences between populations um, because this is quite an upcoming thing now where we think actually it might not just be genetic differences that help a population survive in the wild, but actually epigenetic differences. And only literally this year people are starting to kind of come and look at this and there was a recent um, list of publications that have come out saying that we should be looking at this thing and it's only really very recently that people realise actually we're missing a kind of piece of the puzzle. Um, so I'd really like to do that before before the end of my PhD. And just to go back a few st steps, you, you mentioned two interesting things there. First of all, that you're having to learn to program, to code, uh, and that would seem to be a prere prerequisite these days of any scientific research just because, well, all science is data uh, at, at some level and the easiest way to process data and the quickest way to process data is is by using a computer, getting a computer to, to do it. What's the extent of the programming you have having to learn? I mean, is it is it kind of based within, is there a standardized program that you, you're using or is it a case of writing the software from scratch to do what you want the computer to do for you? Um, a mixture of both, actually. So you can get some software um, which various labs have developed themselves and you can download their packages, but you still really need to be fluent in um, kind of Unix, so command line type code. You really need to be able to use that. 
and more and more it's becoming clear that if you have specific things that are new within your field that you would look at, you've got to write your own code. Um, so I just literally ordered a book last week, uh, something called Python. So I'm learning, I'm learning to write in Python at the moment. And like right. I say, before I started the PhD, I had no, <laughs> no experience of any of this. Okay, uh, and also just as a as a final um, thing to consider, you said you mentioned that you're um, working in conjunction with the University of is it Leuven or Louvain, where Stella comes from, right? Yes, yeah, that's right. Nice. Okay, yeah, Stella, Stella town. Are you actually going over to Leuven, or is this completely remote? So you are just conversing um, over the over the internet and uh, sharing your, your data over the internet? Is that how it works? Yeah, so it's completely remote. Um, so we had them send some samples uh, via post um, that we received, but I would really like to visit at some point, hopefully this year. Um, it's just a case of finding some funding to, to go over there and spend a week there, um, hopefully to write up a paper would be the plan, <laughs> if it goes well enough. Yeah. Um, but it's possible nowadays to do everything remotely, so yeah, there's no reason for me to go there. It's possible we can collaborate and have papers without ever meeting. And that possibility must enhance the not only the speed but the quality of the work you can do uh, no end oh definitely at least definitely in my field so we we tried to breed bees for this particular experiment and our lab was really struggling to breed them um and Leuven had um contacts in a company called biobest so they managed to get this company to just breed the bees which is something we've been struggling with for years so if we didn't have that we'd probably still be struggling right now Thanks very much, Holly. And that's all for now, but you can expect the next episode to be published at the beginning of March. Don't forget you can subscribe on iTunes. Meanwhile, if you have anything to say or anything you want to hear said in the podcast, email us at podhd at pubhd.org.